salvation is something that we at times may feel unsure about. We may feel insecure about that. We may even, it may even come in the form of like doubts, and we may be unsure. What if this, or am I really, or whatever that may look like? And I know for a fact that some of you guys struggle with that because you mentioned it to me, and you wrestle with that, and the unsurety. And I want to tell you this today, that we're going to look at a passage today that tells us that you can be sure. We're going to look at a passage in Hebrews that tells us that you can be Sure, on the heels of a stern warning that we looked at last week and the week before about drifting away, the author of Hebrews tells them and tells us that we can be sure that we belong to him. Praise God. We can be sure that we, were, that we are his. And the word is assurance, assurance, right? That we can be certain. So I want to look at Hebrews 6. Verses 9 through 20 with you today. And again, we've, we've been walking through the book of Hebrews. If you're a guest of ours today, we, we've been walking through this letter for a few weeks. And that's the way that we like to do things on Sunday morning is to go through a book of the Bible and see all the treasures that God has scattered throughout it, at least uh, most of them, many of them. And so we're going to do the same thing again in our next installment in Hebrews 6. I'm going to look at verses 9 through 20, and we'll walk through that together, okay? Starting in verse 9, it says this. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved... We feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Verse 13. Four, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain of the veil, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That last part about Melchizedek is really an introduction into next week in all of chapter 7. So we're not going to emphasize a whole lot there. We're going to focus on the things we just read before that. I'm really excited about this passage of Scripture. Really, really excited. It's one of my favorites that we're going to look at in this entire letter. And I just think that God has something so wonderful to show us about himself. And already this morning, thinking about what I was going to say while we were singing these songs, I just couldn't help but just be overwhelmed by the love of God and the goodness that we have in knowing Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And again, if you've been with us last week, and especially last week and the week before, we saw a severe warning. And you can look back at the passages versus the end of, let's see, chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, and also into chapter 6, you see very clearly a severe warning. But we're going to pivot from that really severe warning to an encouraging assurance, a comfort because of God's promise. One scholar 
said about these two passages that we're going to kind of now be leaning into now is the warning disturbs while the promise gives assurance, but they serve the same end, which is that listeners might persevere in faith. It's neat, right? The warning is warning, persevere in the faith, but the encouragement is the same. Be comforted and so persevere in the faith. You'll notice one of the words we see down here in in the first verse that we're looking at, verse 9, he uses the word beloved. This is the only time in the entire book that the author addresses the audience as beloved. And I think that that is intentional because he just let them have it with some pretty stern warnings. And then immediately he follows that by reminding them of something. You know what it is? That they are loved by God. Can you just, just let that wrap you up real quick? In the, in, the, in the shadow of a stern warning, the, the author just says, but, but remember, you're beloved. You are loved by God. Two weeks ago, I summarized the message by saying two words, and it was uh, grow up. Last week, I summarized it by looking at another two words, and it was wake up. And then this week, I think that the two words that we could use to summarize it is cheer up. Warning, but then quickly, a word of encouragement and comfort, because you can be sure. And so how can we be sure? which is what we're going to look at today. And three ways that I think that we can be sure, as we're going to see in our passage this morning. And number one is this, that God sees your faith and your fruit. God sees your faith and your fruit. And you may be thinking, man, I feel so faithless sometimes. Yeah, we're going to talk about that by the end, that whole anchor conversation. We'll get there. But God sees your faith and your fruit. Even as small as it may be, he does see it. In verse 10, which we'll look at in a moment, it says that God is not unjust, which is kind of an interesting way of putting what he's saying on paper. What he's saying is that God sees who you really are. He's not unjust. He's, he's fair. He, know, he sees clearly. He sees you for who you really are. And in verse 9, he tells them who they really are. He says, though we speak in this way, again, that warning, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. He says, things that belong to salvation. That's what he says, though or however, which is the first word in verse 9 there. It's a pivot from the case of those that will bear thorns and thistles that we looked at last week. Those will be cast and burned. He then pivots from them unbelievers back to his confidence that these are recipients. These are the recipients of this letter that are in Jesus. I think it's neat. In the ESV, I like that they do this, even though this is not necessarily what the Greek words literally mean. But the, the English translation here in the ESV sort of tips this off by saying the Greek word for we feel sure of is a way of saying God has persuaded us of this. And also, real quick, look back at verse 4. It says, it's impossible in the case of those. Notice that word case. And then it talks about people that have fallen away or unbelievers, perhaps. And then it says in verse 9, we speak in this way, yet in your case. Again, it's just a neat way of saying that's one group, but you're of another situation. You're not thorns and thistles. You are fruitful. You are in Christ. Again, that Greek word that we're going to see right here at these next few words that we feel sure of, we feel certain of, it's a certainty of things as a result of God's persuasion. Literally, it's what he's saying is that we have confidence because God has persuaded us to see you clearly. You're not thorns and thistles, people. You are fruit-bearing people. You are in Christ. He says that we feel sure of better things. And it says here, things that belong to salvation. That little phrase, that belong to salvation, simply means things that go along with salvation. You have things ahead of you that aren't thorns and thistles and burning, but things that go along with salvation, that are found beside salvation. Not walking away, but persevering. Not bearing thorns and thistles, but the fruit of obedience. And the very next word in verse 10 is for. So he says, make that claim. We feel sure of these things for, verse 10. For God is not unjust 
so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And you could maybe hit a couple of things here. He sees, one, your work, two, the love that you have shown for his name, and then three, in serving the saints. The author says that God sees Christians. He sees their work and their love and their service. And I don't want you to miss the most important phrase there is that these things are done in his name. They're not just done for the sake of doing. They're done because these people love God. They were showing their love for God by serving and loving one another and bearing fruit in practical ways. Look at verses 11 and 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that, here's the result, you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The author desires for them, verse 11, to have earnestness, diligence, stick to bearing fruit, not sluggishness, which is what he's comparing it or contrasting it with in verse 12, with the purpose of them having full assurance of hope. You know, I can illustrate it this way. It's hard to tell right now in, what is it, January. Man, time really goes by quickly. We're almost, kind of almost done with January. It's wild. But it's hard to tell now. But in the spring and in the summertime, if you see a group of trees, then you see one, and and these very green-looking trees, but then you see one that is just sort of a wooden, bare skeleton free of any vegetation, you'll come to a conclusion. And what is that conclusion? Those trees are alive, and that tree is... It's, it's dead, right? Now, that tree may be able to disguise itself among the others for a season, but in time, what it really is will be established and determined and exposed, really, by its fruitlessness. It can be disguised for a time. It can blend in. But in time, if that tree is long-term fruitless, it's a true identity. And what it really is will be clearly known. And Jesus said this as well. It's not just my analogy. In Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you will know a tree by its fruits. And I would even say, or it's like thereof. You'll know them. That which is rooted in the source of life will bear signs of life, and that which isn't will look eventually dead. That's why Jesus said in John 15, abide in me. Apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing. You will bear no fruit. He says, unless you are in me. And this is the author's point here in Hebrews that one of the most important signs of eternal assurance is present fruitfulness. That's what he's saying, right? You can be sure, and the way you can be sure of eternal assurance is by today, are you bearing fruit? You want to to have eternal life? Are you bearing the fruit of having new life right now? And so the inclination for us as a result of looking at that principle may be to get to religious box-checking and say, oh boy, I better start doing this and doing this and doing this, and I better start being a a good person and be very moral. But I want you to see something. The contrast in verses 11 and 12 are between earnestness and sluggishness. That doesn't begin with work. It begins with a motivation to work. It begins with a heart that is decided upon going and doing. In other words, this, bearing fruit is not first a matter of the hands, but of the heart. Bearing fruit is not first a matter of the hands and of doing, but a matter of the heart. That's why he says, you you work and you love and, and you serve one another. Why? Because you're doing it in his name. You know what that means? You love God and therefore you are doing these things. 
Bearing fruit is not first a matter of the hands, but of the heart. And if you want to bear fruit, it begins within. And then, with a love for God and a love for people, comes serving, bearing fruit. But sometimes I think we get that backwards. We sang that song last week, Inside Out, right? We get that backwards sometimes and say, I've got to go and try harder. I've got to go and be more moral. But guys, like I said, I think last week, that what happens out there begins in here. It's a heart decision. Are we going to love God more than we love ourselves when we go out and it's time to be about it? And that may be the inclination. I better start getting to box checking. But I'm going to say, just hold on a second. Love God first. Or the inclination may be also to start worrying and say, man, this whole thing about being a dead tree, am I bearing fruit? I better start, what, is that me or am I, should I start worrying about this? Am I producing enough fruit? Again, I said this last week, but a warning, which is what, what we've seen here, a warning isn't meant to look backward, but to look forward. In other words, we should forget what lies behind and strive for what lies ahead. Do not dwell on yesterday. Decide today, decide tomorrow, will you walk with Jesus? Now, God is less concerned about yesterday than he is with right now. Will you decide to walk with him today? Will you persevere, which is what he's saying? But we can have the fruit and still may have a seed of doubt. I think that we see biblical figures that are evidence of this. We may ask questions like, well, what if this is still all for nothing? We still may have some doubt there. And I think there's more evidence of assurance that we can see here. So yeah, number one, which is what we just saw, God sees your faith and your fruit. But number two, God knows his promise and his plan. God knows his promise and his plan. He knows all things. He certainly knows you. He also knows himself. He knows what he has said. He knows what he has promised, and he is faithful to his promise and his plan. The author of the book of Hebrews is speaking to people trying to follow God in a godless world. Can we testify to that? Man, trying to follow God in a godless world, that is us, and that is them, and that is Christians of all times and of all people groups. And he hones in on faith and patience, which is the last thing you see at the end of verse 12. He says, be imitators of those through faith and patience inherit the promise. He's saying, I know life's hard. I know there's a lot of difficulty out there. Persevere through faith and, that last word is really important, through patience. And he does so by looking back at one of their heroes and a guy named Abraham, which we've talked about already in the book of Hebrews. Look at verses 13 through 15. He says, for... Again, four is building upon what he just said, faith and patience. You inherit the promise. Four, when God made a promise to Abraham, so he's using him to illustrate faith and patience. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, God did, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, don't miss that, obtained the promise. We see a couple of words here, swear and promise. It all hinges on the fact that God says in verse 14, surely I will. That's the promise. That's the swear. I will do it. An I will from God is the highest possible promise. Amen? An I will from God is the highest possible promise. It was and is a certainty despite all odds against it. In other words, his promise isn't just true because it eventually proves itself to be so. His promise is true because he's the one who spoke it. Because God is truth, and in him there is no falsehood, which we're going to see. You know, you and I can make promises all day long, but it's a lot of time we may make an assurance and say, this is the way it is. But no matter who says it, a promise is only as good as the one who makes it, right? 
I can promise, but your trust in me or in the promise will depend largely on the odds of it coming to fruition. And there will be some part of you that says, yeah, I believe that you mean for that to happen, but odds, right? And that's fair because that's the way that we think because we are fallen people, right? I promised when I was in uh, college, I was a sophomore in college, and I used to play a lot of basketball, um, and I used to actually play basketball okay. That wouldn't happen today, and I won't get into all that. It's discouraging. Uh, but I used to play a lot of basketball, and that was like my passion when I was uh, coming up. My dad loved basketball. We always talked basketball and watched basketball and played basketball. So when I went to college, uh, instead of doing school, I just did basketball, and I paid the consequences for that. I wasn't even on the team. I just loved playing basketball. I'd go to the rec center and just play a whole bunch of basketball. But it cost me eventually, and I had to grow up back to the two weeks ago, right? But anyway, uh, there was a guy named Mike, and we were shooting around in the gym one time, and it was the beginning of the semester. It was in August, and I told Mike, I said, hey, man, by the end of the school year, I'm going to be dunking this basketball. That's what I said. You know what he said? No, you're not. And I didn't. Uh, actually, I mean, I, I could jump okay, and I could put my hand in the rim, but I could never get to the point where I could really put it over the rim. Close, but close doesn't really matter when it's not two points. You know what I'm saying? And he was right to doubt because he knew who was making the promise. He knew the limitations, or more importantly, the lackluster physique of the one making the promise. It's not great odds, right? And so he was wise not to buy in because he knew the one who was making the promise and the limitations thereof. Not great odds. Not much faith, not much hope in the promise. But listen to this. God's promises are immune to odds. God's promises are immune to the odds. God's promises have always been against what seems possible or likely. He impossibly brought plagues leading to impossible freedom for Israel simply because he said that he would do it. It was impossible, and yet it happened. He impossibly parted a Red Sea because God simply said that he would have his people walk across on dry land. And it happened, not because it was possible, but because he said it was going to happen. He knows no odds. He led his people against impossible armies, defeated by inferior numbers. Why? Because he simply said that he would safely deliver his people into a land of promise. Did it matter? Did it make sense on paper? Did the numbers add up? Absolutely not. It was impossible, and it didn't matter. Because God does the impossible. Jesus fed with a few loaves and fish by impossibly multiplying them because God said that he would feed 5,000 people. And Jesus said, bring them on, we're going to feed them. How did it happen? It was impossible because God said it was going to happen. The church spread from an upper room to the globe because God said that his rescue mission would go to all nations. How did it happen? It's impossible. It happened because he said it was going to happen. God's promises know no odds, and they know no limitations. When God told Abraham then that he would have a whole massive family, he was an old, childless man married to an old, barren woman. But Abraham possessed two things despite the overwhelming odds against God. You know what he possessed? Faith and patience. And what happened? God delivered. Because God knows no limitation. And Abraham knew that and said, I don't see it. I don't see the picture. And in fact, it's hard to believe it. But I believe it, and I'll patiently wait for it. 100 years old he was before Isaac was born. Impossible. And yet one day, through his lineage, there would be a little nation called Israel that would not have existed without that promise. There would be a little guy named Jesus born in a manger that would not have existed in the flesh if not for that promise. And more importantly, if not for the God who made the promise. He knows no limitation. The impossible doesn't matter to a God who says, it's going to be true because I am the one who said it. 
Why did Abraham have faith and patience, which you see in verse 12? Because he knew who made the promise. When God says he's going to do something, it needs no further proof. It doesn't need a pinky promise. It's true because he is the one who said it, and his word is enough. And yet, check this out. The author reminds us that God, in this situation with Abraham, he just spoke it. It was a promise. But God did go beyond his promise to Abraham, and also he gave him an oath, which is different. He didn't just say, I will. He also made an oath to him. It says this in verses 16 and 17. It says, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So notice there is a swear, there's a promise. And so it's like, we, I promise that this thing's going to happen, but also if they really mean business and they want to shut down the conversation of any doubt, they provide an oath for final confirmation, 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. He did this with Abraham to make sure he said, I'm not just going to give you a statement of I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you an oath that says I'm double dog dare going to do it. Pinky promise, right? Oaths in ancient Israel weren't contractual. They weren't on paper, but on their personal word. And on their personal word, they would invoke a name that was greater or more trustworthy than their own. They would say, on my mama, I'm going to do it, right? On my hood, I'm going to do it. That's a song these days these kids like. Anyway, they would say, on this person, I'm going to make it. Because that person is trustworthy, I'm going to make it happen. They would swear and say, on this, I'm going to make an oath on, on that individual. And the oath's goal was to bring disputes about truthfulness to a conclusion. That's what they'd say. Wow. If he swore on that person, then it really must be true. We still do this in our culture. People say, I swear, and then they may take the Lord's name in vain. On my grave, they will say. And they, they heighten the oath as a way of saying to the, to the person that's questioning them, okay, if they're willing to go that far, it's settled. I won't doubt. It must be the truth. It must be true. Now, what's happening here is that God's name is the oath upon which it is taken. There is no name higher. And this is why in our society, by the way, we invoke the name of God in court or when someone is taking a, a public office and they say, I'm swearing in under oath right? Under what oath? And they usually have their hand on, on the Bible, and they say, on this oath, because they're ramping up the stakes and saying, God is my witness. I'm going to conduct this office in this way, and it's a way of saying, let all disputes be put to rest, right? And whether or not they hold that up is up to them. But that is what the, the, the cause or the reason they give that oath is for. Now, here's the question. Does God have to take an oath to prove himself? Absolutely not. God does not have to take an oath to prove himself, but God did it. He gave Abraham a promise and an oath. Why? Because he wanted to double down and show him, dude, the thing that I'm about to do is so large and so big, I want you to be so sure that despite how confusing it may seem for a while, I'm going to deliver. And Abraham had faith and patience in that oath. And the reason that the author of Hebrews brings it into the letter here is to give the same certainty that Abraham had. You hear this? to give the same certainty against all odds that Abraham had to believers on this side of the second coming of Jesus. All uncertainty, all odds against. It seems impossible, but he wanted them to be sure to have faith and to have patience. And for us gathered here in this building, a hope and an assurance just like Abraham's. Look at verse 18. He says, so that by two 
unchangeable things. The unchangeable things are God's word and his oath, the promise and an oath. By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. In other words, he can't go back on his promise because he can't lie. He also can't go back on his oath because he can't lie. It's a sure thing. That's what he's saying. And because of that, he says, we, don't miss this, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Refuge. Fled for refuge. Us, the church. God cannot lie. And he has said that salvation is coming for those that are in Christ. I love this, this word usage. Fled for refuge paints such a vivid picture. Who flees for refuge? Who, who, who goes in and is fled because of the danger, a refugious situation? What well, may come to mind a few things. Someone that's a refugee of war. Think about a war in a place like Syria where people are flooding from the borders, getting out because it's not safe. And they're trying to find some sort of shelter. My sister lives in the Middle East and they, they are seeing this. Refugees of war coming and just being homeless and just wanting a place to be because there is no security. There is no safety. You may think of those that are fleeing a natural disaster. What are they seeking? The same thing. Security, shelter. That's what refuge is. Church, listen, we are refugees. We are refugees. Listen to this. We are promised eternal peace by the blood of Jesus, and yet we are hated by the culture. We are vilified by the sexual revolution, and we are trampled upon by the media. That doesn't sound very peaceful, but we're promised peace, and we're refugees of conflict because we are hated because of it. We're promised eternal life, and yet we're burying our loved ones, and we live in constantly decaying bodies, and we can try to strive against it, but Father Tom is undefeated. Feel like you've been barely walking the race of faith, much less running it. You promised eternal life, and yet you feel like you're daily dying. We're refugees, war-torn, in a tough environment of the world, left in self-loathing because of your own shortcomings, discouraged because of your inadequacies. You may have been singing those songs like me just a moment ago and been absolutely blown away that we can talk about the love of God, a firm foundation, when you feel like you're barely standing every day. You're reminded of your sin that is so heavy that you know all the right answers about what God has done, and at the end of the day, when you put your head on your pillow, you feel like you're worth nothing. Inadequate, discouraged. What do you do with that? You're a refugee. And in your own spirit, you're war-torn. Do you understand that? This is why the author says you're fleeing for refuge. Every day, you may be resting on the same bed every night, but you are spiritually fleeing a world that hates you and even a flesh that hates yourself at times. The reason I emphasize that is because the circumstances and suffering of life may feel like God's, don't let me, please don't miss this, the sufferings and circumstances of this life may feel like God's promises are a charade, that they're disconnected from reality. The world would even say it's something that gullible people tell themselves to cope with reality. You ever heard that? That's how Abraham felt. It's a charade. It's absurd. And yet with faith and patience, he persevered and said, I believe that God is who he says he is. No matter what the world around me 
looks like, the odds against looks like, the discouragement, the refuge that I feel. Christ is my firm foundation. An old and aging childless man married to a barren woman, yet God promised faith and patience. Guys, refugees are people that are desperate with nowhere to turn, and I do not know about you, but that is exactly who I am apart from Jesus. Desperate with nowhere to turn. But guys, the good news of the gospel, and don't miss this, the good news of the gospel is that you are right in feeling desperate. You are right in feeling like there is nowhere to turn. There is no effort that you can bring to the table that would qualify yourself for eternity with God, but God saw you in his richness and mercy. He saw you dead in your trespasses and sins and said, I'm going to make a way when there is simply no way. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came and took your place on the cross so you could join him in his place in glory. And if you don't feel like you have hope today, and you may not, it is simply because you have not placed your faith and trust in that reality. And it may be because you simply don't think it can possibly be true. You're in good company. It's not possible. But God is capable of the impossible. Why? Because he makes the rules. And he can break every rule that you can conjure up in your mind. He can overcome it because he is author of all things. Praise be to Jesus. Refugees, that's us. And in our desperation of all things we could have, it says in verse 18, don't miss this, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. That phrase just blows my mind. Because I know myself. And when I think about myself, encouragement is not what I feel. And you may be joining me in that. And that just rattles my cage that this can say that we who are fleeing for refuge every day, that's me, might have strong encouragement to do what? To hold fast to the hope set before us. And that's the third thing. I'm so excited about this part. And that's that, how can we be sure? Because God has given a forerunner and an anchor. God has given a forerunner and an anchor. What is the encouragement? <laughs> verse 19 just says it. How can we have encouragement? How can we hold fast to the hope set before us? Because, verse 19, we have this. <laughs> this is so beautiful. He says, we have this, he says. As a sure and steadfast anchor. Don't miss those three words. Sure, steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He uses these words, the inner place, the place behind the curtain. We just got in singing those words, my anchor holds within the veil. And you may have sung those words millions of times. And perhaps you just sing them and you're like, I don't even know what that means. It just kind of sounds cool. And the music is really loud at that part, so it must be pretty important. I want to explain to you why that's so important. My anchor holds within the veil. The veil separated God from people. The veil was a barrier. He calls it a curtain here in the ESV. It's a veil. It's a separate. It's a barrier. That's what we do. Bridal gowns sometimes have a veil, sort of this figurative barrier, literal barrier between uh, 
two flesh becoming one flesh, right? And so we see this in our, in our culture as well. But this curtain, this veil, in, what dates way back to the tabernacle tent that God instructed for them to build. And he says, I'm going to dwell in that tabernacle. I'm going to dwell. And eventually it became the temple. And so in that temple, there was this place, this inner room, this inner sanctum, and holy of holies, the most special place of all the places in the whole world. And no one could go in. Because that represented the dwelling place of God. And you and I are unholy people. We are sinful people. God ain't like that. He is holy in every way. And no one in all of creation is worthy to enter the presence of God. That's why Adam and Eve had to get out whenever they sinned. You can't be with God anymore. You've got to go. And so God had given them something, a room that he dwelled in. And he said, but here's the thing. Nobody can come in except one. And they only can do it one time a year. And so this one person, one time a year, he was called the high priest, which is a word we're going to see next week as well. He's the high priest. Priest meaning intercessor, the go-between, the one that comes between God and man. He was the high priest, meaning he was the most important go-between. And this inner place that no man can go because that's where God is, the high priest could go in once a year. And the reason he went in was to bring one atoning sacrifice to say, God, we're not worthy to be in here. I'm going to bring this special animal, and I'm going to kill this animal as a reminder to you that I want you to pour out the just wrath, the just punishment of sin on this life. Don't pour it out on us. So once a year, he'd bring this in, not because he was worthy, but because he wasn't. He'd bring this lamb and lay it down and kill the lamb, and God would receive it. He would receive that sacrifice and say, it's a substitutionary sacrifice. In other words, it's a death in place of a death. Once a year, and that death in place of a death happened in the inner place, behind the curtain, behind the veil, where no one was allowed. They went in there because it was a foreshadow of what was to come, that God would do something to go into the inner place and bridge the gap between people and God. That's also why it says when Jesus was crucified, the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom because it wasn't torn by man. God restored fellowship with man. That will preach, as they say. Guys, it's radical. We who have no business in the presence of God, it says, have a hope that enters behind the curtain. Please, please hear that. Please, that we who have no business we're more like Adam and Eve than we are like Jesus. We have no business behind the curtain. We have no business in the garden. We have no business in heaven. But God has sent one to go behind the curtain so that you could go behind the curtain. He sent one to bridge the gap because you couldn't go into the presence of God. It's radical that we have a hope, as it says here, that enters behind the curtain. It's radical that our hope goes there. And that's why he says in verse 19, we have a sure and steadfast anchor. It's sure because it's trustworthy. It's steadfast because it's permanent. And it's an anchor because it's hanging in there. When I sing that song, my anchor holds within the veil, I think about this nautical situation where up top there's a storm and the waters are so murky and disturbed. And an anchor, an anchor is shaped that way for a reason, you know. It's shaped that way so it grabs and it holds. And it's got those things that come out of it so that it will grab something down there to keep that boat from moving no matter what. The fact that you have an anchor that goes behind the curtain means that no matter what, you are allowed in the presence of God. No matter what, man. That's why when you, when you sing that song, 
If you come into this place as someone who is broken and sinful and messed up so many times this week, that's me. If that's you, man, how can you sing those words and not just radically be blown away that God would hold you when you feel unholdable? That makes me emotional to think about it. That so often I feel so flighty and the kids are, they, they get your mind and the, and the marriage and the work and the hobbies, they, they all get your mind. And you can go an entire day and not think about how incredible it is that God could hold you. I don't know what to do with that. The death of Jesus is an anchor. It, it, it dug in. That's what an anchor does. It, it dug in to that room so that no matter what you do, you can't go anywhere. You're staying because you're his. When it says that you're a refugee, you're an immovable refugee who has found a permanent home. This word about an anchor. My parents um, are just incredible people. My dad is a pastor and has been a pastor for a long time. My mom, um, we joke and say she's the best preacher in the family. She's a good Bible teacher is what I mean by that. And um, she does a lot of women's conferences and events, and she's a really good Bible teacher. But they're just so faithful. But they have not gotten that way because life has been easy. There's been great suffering. A few years ago, they, just, they established uh, an organization of the, their own making just for their book publications or public speaking, whatever it may be. It's called Anchor Deep Ministries. Anchor, this is where they get that, this verse 19. It's called Anchor Deep Ministries. Between myself and my younger brother, they had a miscarriage. A few years after um, they were done having children, it was back in 99, I think, 2000, uh, my mom almost died. She, um, I think she had a full hysterectomy and there were complications with the surgery, and she almost bled out and just died. And they actually sent her home, and that's when that happened. And she was just ghost white and nearly died. And she's still here with us. But she almost died that night. They couldn't stop the bleeding and finally rushed her to the hospital and, and were able to get things under control. And that happened, I was 13, and I, it's hard for me to remember that, but it's, they had to have faith. They anchored deep. They dealt with job loss. They've dealt with the loss of parents. My dad lost both of his parents to cancer. My dad had a serious heart attack a few years ago and nearly died. I had to get several stints put in. Um, I got the call while I was on the road, and it was late at night, and um, they told me that my dad had a serious heart attack, and they're not really sure what's going to happen. I say that to say they have this ministry of Anchor Deep Ministries, and that's not a plug because I don't really care if you do anything about that information. That's me saying that They'd establish that ministry because they know the importance of these words. Life is not easy. Some of you know that better than others. Some of you know that there are several things in your life that you may be in that room, but man, do you feel pulled towards the curtain. You feel pulled and pulled, and it may be just because of circumstances and suffering and cancer and sickness. It may be because of loss. It may be because of vocational things that are out of your control. There may be a lot of things that are pulling, or it may just be because you yourself are backsliding and sin is gnarly and it hurts and you have a hard time fighting against it and you feel pulled towards that curtain. My parents know that. I know that to a far lesser degree. You know that. In those moments, you have an anchor that holds within the veil. There's no way that I can say that in a way that makes you appreciate it. 
I just hope God helps you to see the beauty in that statement. That's all I can do. Life so often feels hopeless. You may feel like you're in a dark tunnel and there's just no sight of light. I just want you to know that you have an anchor. Grow up, wake up, cheer up. I just can't think of a better word for this author to end this weighty warning with than an encouragement. It says in verse 20, and I'll end here, Jesus is our forerunner. You know what that means? Please don't put your things up. Hold on. It says Jesus is a, a forerunner. That doesn't mean that he drives a Toyota. Okay. It means that Jesus went into that place first. We know that this is, this is the story of the gospel, right? That Jesus made a way when there was no way. He went first. He died and was resurrected so that we too may have life. He's our forerunner. He goes into that space so that we could come in after him. It says that he did it on our behalf. That means that he is interceding. It means that left to yourself, you have no business in that room. No business at the throne of God. But he's interceding for you. First John chapter 2 calls him your advocate. It means he's fighting for you and saying, Father, don't look at their sin. Look to my righteousness that they're wearing. Just in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. And finally, it says that he's our high priest. It means that he brought the payment. He brought the sacrifice. If you're here today, you feel like you're surrounded by people who have it together. They may be really good at fooling you, but I want you to understand something. Every person in this room is unworthy of even approaching the throne room. Unworthy. And they may trick you and make you seem and feel like you're outcast and, and that you're less than them. And they may be doing it intentionally or unintentionally. I just mean that we're good at putting on a face. But will you just be honest? You are as broken as the next guy. The reason we come in here and worship God is because due to Jesus, we don't have to be. And so today, if you're hopeless, here's my earnest plea. Give it up. Enough of the strivings. Give your life to Jesus today. Our forerunner, who has gone in the place that you have no business going, who has radically made a way that you can be restored to fellowship with God. You want assurance? You're not going to find it in yourself. You'll only find it in Christ alone, our cornerstone the anchor that holds within the veil.